Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fame. Monday, November 23rd, 2015. No theme today, by the way. It's just a hodgepodge. It's it's a mess. It's a bowl of mash. I you know I don't know what it is. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop. Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the unthinkable, (laughs) the politically incorrect. We actually... Take what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, and apostolettes, we actually take what they say God is trying to teach us and put their words back in context if they're quoting the Bible or test their so-called prophecies against Scripture to see if what they're telling us is the truth or if they're teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. And over and again, we find all kinds of nuttiness being passed off as Christianity. Hence, we get to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's it's actually quite depressing, if you think about it, that uh, I never seem to run out of material. <clears throat> that's that's a problem, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I'd love it if you know the church repented, and got rid of all of these false teachers, and then I had to go find another day job. I mean, that would be fantastic. But anyway, uh, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We need to actually get to it. Uh, we're going to, it, like I said, no theme today. Normally, each episode of Fighting for the Faith does have a theme. Today's doesn't. Uh, and if I tell you it doesn't have a theme, then it doesn't. If I don't say anything, then it does. And there's generally it's an apologetic theme. It's a doctrinal theme. It could be an epistemological theme. There's uh, certain things that I try to weave together and have the uh, all the uh, horses for the program pulling in the same direction, if you would. And uh, today, no, the, the horses are not <laughs> they're not pulling in the same direction. They're going in lots of different directions. So what we're going to do is we are going to start out with a money-grubbing televangelist update. Money-grubbing televangelist update. And uh, T.D. Jakes' daughter, uh, Cora Jakes Coleman, has written a book. And we're going to listen as Cora Jakes Coleman and uh, T.D. Jakes discuss her new book called Faithing It. Yeah, I know. I... (laughs) 
Uh, you heard that right. It's faithing it. Yeah. Have you been faithing it? I, yeah. Apparently, uh, <laughs> faith is now a participle. But anyway, so we're, uh, we, we need to be faithing it. We'll listen to them discuss these things. And, and basically, they're at the potter's house uh, getting, com- trying to convince people they need to purchase a copy of this book by Cora Jakes Coleman, the daughter of T.D. Jakes, called Faithing It. Um, well, well, then after that, we've got a, a brief, and I mean brief, um, William Tapley update, and uh, we'll piggyback off of the William Tapley update, and we will have a Jim Baker, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn update. Uh, William Tapley is going to be talking about apparently how a, a recent iPad commercial uh, was, you know, the Illuminati was telegraphing their intent to um, be responsible for the false flag event that apparently happened in Paris. Y- yeah, y- I'm talking about the terrorist attacks, and William Tapley's convinced it was a false flag event, and uh, and that the Illuminati, uh, it let us know that it was coming uh, via an iPad commercial. And uh, we'll take a break sometime in there when when we get to that time, and then we will listen to an extended Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and Jim Baker update as uh, they have now kind of, you know, building off of the Shemitah, they are now trying to reveal the mystery of... You know, I need dramatic music. Hang on a second here. <laughs> I, can't, I can't discuss what the mystery is until I have some, some suspenseful music. They are going to be discussing the... The mystery of... The Towers. <laughs> Yeah, no joke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who was it that said that there's a sucker born every minute? Yeah, the they they're just. I mean, what you're gonna hear is just utter nonsense, all designed to fear monger and make you want to buy prepper food from uh, Jim Baker, which is just absolutely disturbing if you think about it. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Actually, I forgot what we're gonna talk about in hour number two. In hour number two, we're going to. Uh, Head down to Western Hills Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we're going to be listening to a sermon from them, and the sermon that we're going to be listening to is from their Winning Stories of Victory sermon series, and uh, this the we will be listening to the sermon entitled Winning Against All Odds. Now, this is one kind of an odd thing for me. I am not certain which of the members of their staff there at Western Hills Church in Oklahoma City is responsible for preaching this hot mess of nonsense, uh, but uh, we will go ahead and play it anyway. So it is. we don't know who it is. If you know who the pastor is that's preaching this, let me know, and we will. Uh, when we post this in the podcast and on the website, we'll edit the uh, podcast and website so that it correctly reflects who it was that was responsible for it, it is that you're going to hear in hour number two. That, you know, now, that will make up today's episode of Fighting for the... I was getting ahead of myself. That will make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we're going to begin with a money-grubbing televangelist update, well, that requires us to do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. 
So uh, here is uh, Cora, uh, Cora Jakes Coleman, daughter of T.D. Jakes and her father, T.D. Jakes, at the Potter's House, discussing her new book entitled Faithing It, which kind of begs the question, what on earth does this woman, what makes her think she's qualified to teach the church? Um, she clearly is not a Bible scholar, as you're about to see. Here we go. I'm excited. You have written a book yes. called... Faithing it. Faithing it. Faithing it. Yeah, rhymes with faking it. Now, you have created the word faithing. <laughs> yes. you, you do know that. You yes. created not- Yeah, you created it. It's not found in the Bible. Nowhere in the scripture are we told to faith it. <sighs> what is so strong about faith that you decided to create the word faithing it and make it a verb? And what does that mean? Well, faithing it, meaning to trust in God's ability to do anything. And so in a world where our faith is being shaken, it seemed as if people are are so used to seeing the other side. No one gets to see the pain of the process. Mm -hmm. And so faithing it is my... Yeah, I have no idea what she's talking about there. That just flew right over my head. Pain of the process, my conditioning, and how they can overcome the obstacles of life by faith. And what, what? Overcome the obstacles of life by faith. Yeah, so are you faithing it? Yeah, are you overcoming the obstacles of life by faith? Oddly enough, this will, in some sense, tie into our sermon that we'll be listening to in hour number two. Unfortunately, the eschatological stuff in between the eschatological sandwich will not. But, um, okay, let's continue with this nonsense. to the point of writing, the, writing this book. After I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is also known as PCOS, um, they told me that I would not be able to have children without fertility treatments. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was very devastating, very hard for me at the time. And I realized there were a lot of women Mm -hmm. battling with infertility and the world had turned it into a shameful thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So you had a personal battle against infertility. And the way you overcame it was by faithing it. Okay. So I wanted to show how we all battle with some type of infertility. Mm-hmm. And- um, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I have never battled with infertility. That's never been my problem. Um, yeah, okay, this is going to get really strange really quick. Lives, and so... When you talk about when you talk about us all battling with some area of infertility in our life, you- you're taking her seriously, huh, TD? Okay. Going beyond natural birth, you're going right down to birthing the best part of who we are, birthing our business, birthing our family, birthing our dream. Yeah. Birthing our business, yeah. For those of you out there pregnant with a business, I think you're going to need a C-section for that. <sighs> yeah, this is not what Christianity is about. At all. Yeah, we've got our eyes firmly off of Christ and onto something that's just absolutely temporal and nonsensical. There are people who struggle to see those things come to pass. How do you address that in the book? 
absolutely, when I talk about fertility faith, I, I talk about the definition of infertile, meaning the inability. Do you have fertility faith? <laughs> yeah, Jesus is now a fertility goddess. I, I say it like that on purpose. To produce. Okay. And so because of our fear of success and our fear of failure, we allow ourselves to stay stagnant and not move forward in what God would have us to do. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And what exactly are you talking about? Absolutely. So whether that's to produce ministry or to produce a vision or to produce some other area of your life. Uh, None of which is actually discussed anywhere in the Bible, nor has the Christian church taught any of this as if it were sound biblical Christian doctrine. This is just made up stuff designed to scratch itching ears. Talking a lot about purpose. But you're talking about being productive. Yes. Yeah, about being Well, you can't have purpose without being productive. Absolutely. Um, And if you have a destiny, then you have to faith for that destiny. And Mm, yeah, it's a dream destiny thingy for sure. You know, in the guise of fertility faith. Man. And I cannot believe the people there at the Potter's Touch have not walked out on this young lady and her father and realized that they're being scammed. What is happening is we're standing in the evidence of our faith Mm -hmm. and we blame God because we haven't moved further when we're standing in what we hoped for, not what God hoped for us. Absolutely. Yeah, I have no idea what that meant either. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So are you standing in the faith for the thing that you're hoping for or for the thing that God is hoping for? Yeah. I don't even know what any of that means. You know... A lot of people confuse religion and church with faith. They don't necessarily come together as a package. You can go to church and not necessarily have faith. Right. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people confuse what's going on at the potter's house with Christianity. (laughs) You know, it isn't like not even close. And there are a lot of people who go to church as if they were taking a drug and say, well, I went to church, I paid God off, boop, boop, I took two pills, everything ought to be all right. But faith deals with more with what's going on in your heart. Is that yes, right? The relationship. We get so tied into religion. Faith is relationship. In order to believe and trust in someone, you have to have a relationship, a connection with them. And so, Yeah, relationship talk isn't going to help you here. If you truly had a real relationship with Jesus, then you would be keeping and guarding his word rather than disobeying it and making up nonsense. I've found how to have a connection, an intimate connection with God because he's our father. Mm -hmm. And so we grew up learning about mustard seed faith. No one challenged us to do bigger than that. And we grew up learning about how we can't ask God why when Jesus asked God why Mm -hmm. on on the cross. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to change. Oh, man. (laughs) So apparently the uh, previous generation, yeah, uh, the generation responsible for Sunday schooling, uh, Cora Jakes, um, they taught her about mustard seed faith and and told her she can't ask why, but Jesus asked why on the cross. So she feels like she can too, right? This is just gobbledygook. And the people there at the potter's house are eating this up as if, Oh, this is this fresh, warm manna from heaven. It's not. It is literally worm-ridden dung. The perspective of faith for for the world. That's amazing. That's exciting. 
You've written a, a book about faith, and yet where you are is not really a surprise. I jokingly said that when you came up, when when we were when you were very little, we sent you to a, a private school, and this particular religious organization that founded the school did not believe in women preachers. But Cor- yeah, they must have actually listened to God's word. You know, the written word of God uh, forbids a woman from actually being a pastor and preaching to men in church, right? About that high, you know, and and they kept asking her what she was going to be when she grew up, and she said, "I'm going to be what? I'm going to be a preacher, just like my daddy." <laughs> and they didn't know what to do with her because they didn't really think that women had any. Bring her up on heresy charges, and you too. In sharing the word of God, but she told them every chance she got, "I'm going to be a preacher, just like my daddy." And look at you right now. You have become just that. Right. A heretic teaching false doctrine, just like your daddy. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? You have become just that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I have had many authors and and many speakers down through the years and helped many, many people to get their message out about their book and what they've done. What an honor it is. To have my daughter sitting in this spot, and your daughter too. My wife helped a little bit with this process. My mama. That's her mama, no question about that. Faithing it, faithing it. What I like about it is as people read this book and as they begin to study out of this book, so much of what. Yes, rather than the Bible, you know. Toward God has a tendency to be focused on church. But this is something you do laying in the bed at night, getting up in the morning, sitting around the water cooler, having a personal experience with God. The book is almost a devotional in the sense that it creates a new level of devotion that makes faith personal. Absolutely. Well, you know, God rewards us in a quiet place. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you're doing in the... (laughs) God rewards you in a quiet place? What? Quiet time is what is rewarded, not what you do in the public, but how you are intimately connected in the quiet time. Say it. This uh, is good. This is exciting. Uh, I know nothing you- exciting about this diseased mess. Wow. We're doing a book signing after service. I want to. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, she's doing a book signing after the service. Listen to this. I you to go and, and get behind this vision because not only are you getting something for you, it's something that I strongly believe in is passing the torch to the next generation. Amen. If, if your faith only works in church and it doesn't affect your children, then sometimes you begin to wonder. And I know the enemy will fight you over your child, but God has promised you the fruit of your body. Come on, talk to me, somebody. He promised to bless the fruit of your body. And so I'm excited. I'm going to come back and get my, my copy. I want you to write something real good about me. Today they get to buy one, gift one. So if you go out and you buy the book for one price, then you get another book to be able to give to someone else and bless the message and give it to someone in need. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a twofer there uh, uh, at the Potter's house. Just buy one, get one free, and you can gift one. You can, you know, spread this heresy like, you know, like the Ebola virus. Okay. So, uh, does that, do any of you find it um, completely inappropriate, wrong, sinful, um, totally 
manipulative. Uh, I can't have run out of ways of describing what it is I'm I'm seeing here. For them to be plugging and selling the book during their church service. I have a big problem with it. Just a ginormous problem with it. Anyway, that's about all I can handle on that nonsense. Moving along. Yeah, that's time time for a William Tapley update and a Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and Jim Baker update. Coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune, doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom. Very soon, rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom. Very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. That's right. William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, combined with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and uh, Jim Baker. Yeah, I've decided that uh, moving forward, uh, they have earned the right. That would be Jim Baker and Jonathan Kahn and others like him have earned the right to actually have William Tapley sing their uh, the opening to their segments here at Fighting for the Faith. And there's an obvious reason for this, and that is is that these guys are all birds of a feather. They are totally flocking together, and the things that they are doing are utterly absurd. Now, William Tapley, the problem with William Tapley, if if he didn't have such bad chops, if he, he actually had a little bit of charisma and some really good production value to what he was doing, oh, the guy would have millions of followers. In fact, I'm convinced William Tapley, if, if he... <laughs> We weren't so quacky, would actually be a regular uh, person to appear on Jim Baker's program. And and he would just be rolling in the dough, totally rolling in the dough. But William Tapley is hapless. Uh, the, the poor guy just doesn't quite have the chops. And so you look at the things he says and you just go, oh, man, William Tapley. But see, the thing is, <laughs> same thing that uh, William Tapley does is the exact same thing that Jonathan Kahn is doing that um, yeah Jim Baker is doing you could say Rick Joyner is doing the same thing it's it it's all the same same template same bizarre observations same claiming to have prophetic insight to what God is doing and what God is up to and you know and it all of it just sounds like conspiracy nonsense so, um, yeah, but, uh, oh, by the way, the, uh, the mystery of the Shemitah now, uh, at 60% off at, uh, christianbook.com just saying, you know, it's starting to fire. So I'm waiting for it to show up at the five and dime so I can use it from, use it as uh, door stops, you know, here in my house. But, uh, here's William Tapley to explain how apparently, uh, the, uh, one of the, the latest iPad commercials was telegraphing a message from the Illuminati, letting us know of the um, Paris attacks. Yeah, here we go. The Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. This past Friday the 13th, there was another horrible massacre in Paris, and I believe it was perpetrated by the Illuminati, just as they perpetrated the Charlie Hebdo massacre back on January 7th. And, of course, they do these false flags in order to bring about their one-world government. 
because the governments respond by restricting the citizens, by putting up roadblocks, by asking for IDs, for bringing out SWAT teams on the military, and so on. And this is exactly leading to the reign of the Antichrist. Right. You are aware that ISIS is taking credit for this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I predicted last December here on YouTube, I did three videos telling you that there would be two false flags in 2015. And I told you that they were predicted in two iPad commercials. And I also said they would feature the number 815. Now, before I give you my proofs that this latest massacre was masterminded by the Illuminati, let's review the Charlie Hebdo massacre, which was predicted in the iPad commercial called Your Verse. And one of the most important scenes in that commercial is this iPad where we see the two names, Frank and Charles. Of course, that indicated Charlie Hebdo and France. And also, on that iPad was the phrase, if the mouth offends, sometimes a hand is needed to cover it. Obviously, a threat to anyone in the know not to spill the beans. Right. So Apple's in on this, and uh, the people who make Apple iPad commercials, they were, yeah, right. They're the tools of the Illuminati. Got it. Also in that commercial, we saw this horrible image of a pregnant woman giving birth, and of course she's naked. The two... Yeah, I... I see a valley and the sun coming up or setting. I wow. You don't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm gonna take a break right there. When we come back. We'll continue with a little bit more of a William Tapley. I gotta go reset my brain for a second compose myself for what's coming okay if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the faith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pyre christian follow me on twitter my name there at pyre christian quick break when we come back a little bit more william tapley and then we'll switch gears and uh, take a listen to the mystery of the towers the newest latest nonsense from rabbi jonathan khan and jim baker stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back we don't need to rethink christianity we need to rediscover it you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hearty, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, yo ho. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. We extort, we presents Church Day Select.
Welcome George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart. Whoa, dude. Your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car and stuff? Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but man, it's so smart, it's like really creepy. Huh, okay, man, this it's cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house then? Yeah. Hey, GPS! What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well... I guess we're going to have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And we're on our way, dude! In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray, what'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it, like, totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well... I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing. And then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah, but it's even better than that. Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe... Well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And, and that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. All right, dude. I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking, I've got like some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So that make you like Luke Skywalker or something? Not even. I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the Son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The Force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the Force? That would make you, like, God... Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the Force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Oh. Uh, well, I guess if I was a god, I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. Too soon? Ah!
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things Conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more information. That's higherthings.org. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that all of those prophetic insights being offered by people like Rick Joyner and Rabbi Khan and Jim Baker, they're just nonsense. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see right there on the homepage our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you select your rank. That's right. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month. And it goes up from there from Gunner's Mate to Master Gunner and Quartermaster. And that is a great way to support us. We're in the process of trying to find 600 Powder Monkeys so that we can afford kind of the next level of our expansion uh, with uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Media. So uh, partner with us so that we can do the next thing. We want to continue to be able to serve the Christ in, in, in increasing ways, if you know what I mean. Plus, supporting us makes it so that we can stay on the air and keep doing what we're doing as well. It's not just for expansion. It's also for, like, longevity, period. So, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We honestly, truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here's a little bit more William Tapley before we switch gears and take a listen to uh, Jim Baker and Jonathan Kahn and the Mystery of the Towers. Here we go. On either side, represent our thighs. And we see in the lower center a stick figure, and I believe that is the Antichrist. Right, yeah. <laughs> Weird art interpretations. In other words, 
the purpose of all of these false flags, all of this chaos, all of this death and destruction, this murder and mayhem, is to bring in the worst person who ever lived, and that is the Antichrist, as our leader of the world. That's who they want. And this iPad commercial also showed two false flags in this image, the sun showing an explosive type event, and the smoke to the right of that showing another smoky event. And I think we saw those fulfilled with the Charlie Hebdo and the Eagles of Death Metal Massacres. Eagles of Death Metal Massacre. Uh, I think you're the only one calling it that. And let me prove to you that this Charlie Hebdo Massacre was predicted ahead of time, and the Illuminati were behind it, and they like to leave their trademarks behind. And as I said, as I predicted, the number 815 would be associated with it. And maybe you remember this image of the getaway car being hauled away by a crane. And the number on the crane, if you take a close look, is 815. Yeah, it is. <laughs> How many hours did you have to scour footage from the Charlie Hebdo attack to find the crane number is 815? It's 815T, by the way, not just 815. And if you look at the license plate on the getaway car, it is 815 backwards. In other words, 518. None of this is accidental. This is how they leave their calling cards. Clearly, clearly, yes. And in fact, uh, this whole event of hauling away this car was staged. Quite a few people have noted that the car in this image has black side mirrors, whereas the actual getaway car had silver mirrors. So now let's take a look at the new iPad commercial called Changes in the Air and how that predicted this latest massacre of the Eagles of the Death Metal concert. We're over 100. I'll never be able to watch an iPad commercial quite the same ever again. We're massacred. In the first scene, we see this military truck yeah. going through the desert. Yep, we do. And I know at the time, you and I, you subscribers, and I, we tried to figure out what the numbers meant on the back of this truck. And I still don't think there's any significance to that. Maybe you can take a look and see what you think. We now know that there was a significance to the two words O-U-E-S-T and N-O-R because that is French. Those are the French words for West and North. Now, I'm not sure where Paris fits in there. Paris is in the north of France, but it's really more towards the center than the Northwest. So that may not indicate the location. Now, one of the very first scenes in this iPad commercial called Changes in the Air it's a rock concert, and I don't think that's accidental. They were telling us where this false flag event would take place. Mm -hmm. And the next most important scene is this automobile, and I discussed this a lot before last year, and I knew those numbers were significant. The number on the car is actually 78, and the 7 is covered up by the driver, but we know the number is 78 because if you look at the little box in the upper right, the two numbers appear 78. And, of course, they add up to 15. So there is your first manifestation of 815 in this commercial. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. You ever thought that, you know, if William Tapley were really on <laughs> to the 
clues and movement of the Illuminati that he would actually no longer be with us. <sighs> Man, I just it's just un just weird. Now, um I, I have to do this and I apologize. It's time for verse two of this song because moving forward, whenever we do a Jim Baker, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, you know, eschatological update, they're getting the uh, William Tapley treatment from us. So Here's our next segment of Fighting for the Faith, complete with their own music. Here we go. Don't be dumb. Rapture comes long before the seventh trump. Don't be dumb. It will be as in the days of Noah's flood. Rapture comes. Lot and Noah did not have to shed their blood. Rapture comes, trim your wick or face the gun. Don't be dumb, rapture comes, fill your lamps, there won't be oil for everyone. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's right, don't be dumb. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so what we're going to be listening to is a recent installment from the uh, Jim Baker show over there from Grace Street. And... Um, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and uh, Jim Baker are are <laughs> going to be discussing no longer. Well, they, they will mention the Shemitah in passing, but uh, the thing they've kind of moved on to is the mystery, the mystery of the towers. Yeah, that's right. Get ready for this <laughs> hot mess of eschatological profundity. Here we go. It says that you have a mystery that there are three abominations that lead to judgment. Yes. Could we talk yes. about that today's yes. broadcast? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the Bible, the word abomination comes from a few Hebrew words, which means loathsome or detestable. There are three particular abominations in the Bible to God that bring judgment. And the first abomination, we'll just touch on them, but the first abomination was the sin of Israel offering up their children. That is, God says, this is an abomination. Now, I'm going to point this out. Um, when the children of Israel offered up their children to the false god Molech, that was tied up in um, idolatry. So I'm going to note that here because Israel didn't start off, you know, just by, you know, practicing a clinical abortion. No, they they actually practiced child sacrifice to a false god. This was wrapped up in the sin of idolatry. And I'll, I'll reference this back. You know, I just want to make a put a little marker here. Remember that we continue. They offered up their children to Baal, the god Baal, the altars of Molech. And that's when Jeremiah, when he goes out to the elders of Israel, he's holding a, a clay jar and he says, this is Israel. This, I made it, but shh, I can smash it. He says it over the valley of Ben-Hinnom or the valley of Hinnom where they offered up their children and saying that Israel was, be, was destroyed because of this sin. That the sin of offer, God says the offering up of your children, the killing of the innocent is an abomination to God. Yes, it is. And we, got, we, we need to make a note here. It is absolutely sinful and abominable to to kill and murder your children, whether it's in the worship of false gods like Molech and Baal, or in the worship of self, which is what abortion is really all about. 
So, you know, we're going to note this. Abortion is just absolutely abomination. It's damnable. However, it is also a sin which Christ has bled and died for, and those who are guilty of these sins can be forgiven. So we need to put that in there. But they're not really interested in promoting the gospel here. They're, they're actually selling a DVD. We continue. America was created, was formed after the pattern of Israel. It has, we've watched as it's fallen from God, driving God out of the schools, out of its culture, out of the word of God, prayer. And then according to the pattern, what happens? The sin of ancient Israel comes to America as America in 1973, which was a Shemitah, which means the fall. Uh, no, Shemitah means release, but... Well, he, Shemitah means just about anything you want it to, That's, which is why we're going to be selling fiery Shemitah sauce in the future. Just want to let you know. Legalizes the killing of children. The, the, in the mystery of the Shemitah, there's a chapter called the mystery of the towers. The Bible speaks of towers, and the tower represents a kingdom, a nation, its glory or its pride. And in, often, in the times of judgment, it says the judgment will come against every high tower. So towers very yeah, verses out of context. He's just he needs these verses to kind of show that oh this is really what the Bible's teaching. Okay, so the mystery of the towers here in the United States. Apparently, we've got harbingers showing up in towers now. Very symbolic in the Bible. Well, there, we're going to see with every one of the three abominations, there's a tower that will be linked to it. Right. So the abomination of killing your children has a tower linked to it. And oh. here now in the you know here is here's one right now. Okay. There was a tower that was built to proclaim the glory of America at its preeminence over over the over economically, commercially and it was called the World Trade Center. It was mm-hmm. to show it was yes. the new American world order. Now something that is not known. It was to, it was to be America's glory, but that tower also was it was be in the dark side of, of it was the Tower of America's shame, and I'm going to tell you why. The same hand that signed the paper, the document to begin the building of that tower, the tower, the World Trade Center, is the same hand that signed the paper to begin the legal killing of children in America. Oh. really? Did you find this in an iPad commercial? Okay, so apparently the same guy who signed, you know, hey, let's get started on the World Trade Center, which would be the uh, governor of New York, I think, uh, was it Norman Rockefeller? He signed to get the uh, towers built, and he also was the first guy to sign, uh, you know, making it legal for abortion. Okay, so see, there you go. That proves, you know, this whole tower mystery thingy. Right, And and there's more towers and more mysteries, you know. The same hand. To one, what? this tower to be of to be of a nation's glory. Same hand signed the paper that began abortion in America. It was the governor of New York, and the thing is, the first tower was completed in the year well, first 1970. In that same year, abortion became legal for the first time in America in New York, the same place in 1970. Tower. Wow. Well, well I mean this. This is just ironclad reasoning right here, also known as the post hoc ergo poppycock fallacy. That's what my wife calls this. It's actually post hoc ergo prompter hoc after this, therefore because of this. It's, it's, this is a logical fallacy. This is not biblical teaching. Tower goes up in New York, abortion legal in New York. The towers, the final towers. The- wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, I just, <laughs> something just hit me, but I've wondered about for decades. 
Uh-huh. And, and what would that be, uh, Jim? I, I feel like standing up, but uh, I won't. Go yeah, please, you know, feel free. I mean, it is your program. If you want to stand up, you can. So many people keep saying God doesn't set dates. Um, <laughs> who's saying that? I'm not saying that. Um, yeah, I am, I am saying that uh, those of you out there predicting that you know when the uh, Great Tribulation is going to begin, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't set any dates. You can't talk about dates. So people say if a prophet talks about something, and we understand we don't know the the, the day or the hour that, that Christ is going to return. Only God knows that. Right, but you guys have uh, officially declared that the Great Tribulation begins in March of 2016. It was supposed to start, you know, in February, not February, but September or October. But you've uh, declared there at the Jim Baker Show that uh, uh, God has delayed things because the Christian church wasn't ready yet. So you have set dates. Yeah, March 2016, Great Tribulation begins. But I want to say something. God is a date-setting God. And he's getting applause for this nonsense. What exactly do you mean by that, Jim? God sets dates, and he sets prophecy that sets dates. And his dates... Sure, God sets dates. No problem with that at all. What you don't have is the knowledge of what dates God has set and what those dates are, because he hasn't told you. Come on... Uh, you know, it's just history. And this is what what you're sharing with us. And, and This isn't even a lucid thought. People, if you study the word... You're going to know a lot more than you know right now. You mean like dates? Yeah, no, you're not. That's right. And so you're telling us that in 1970, the first tower is completed of the Twin Towers. And it was the same year that abortion, abortion was made legal. In America, in New York City, same place by the same hand of the man who began the tower. Oh. Same. Yes. And then, that was 1973, the World Trade Center is finished. Finished. Grand opening. 1973 is the year abortion becomes legal throughout America. That tower stood for all the years that America was killing its children. That tower that was representing our glory. And again, it says in the Bible, on the time of judgment, it comes against the high towers. And that's the tower that was struck down in 9-11. It was, it was born... In this, born by that hand, born at that time, and standing as a testament for the years we killed our children. So, the- uh, yeah, we're still killing our children, murdering them uh, via abortion. Um, yeah. The first abomination of the, the three. The killing of children, the innocent of the nation. Yes, that's the first abomination. Okay. So then what's... The second abomination in the Bible of, of major stream of abomination that brings judgment is that of sexual immorality. And particularly that of, in the Bible, of the twisting of sexuality and of gender. Again, homosexuality truly a sin. And it truly damnable and uh, makes you liable to God's judgment. No problem with that. 
the problem I'm having here is him connecting somehow that this is some eschatological mystery that he has, you know, and code that he has cracked, and therefore we need to buy, uh, you know, prepper supplies from Jim Baker. You'll hear arguments, and we say this, and we'll say it always. God, we're all in the same boat. God calls all of us from our sins. There's no sin that is more, in the end, more judged. And and we we love all people, but we're dealing with sin now, and we're dealing with a nation now. I've spoken of towers, and we've spoken about in past programs about the act of desecration. We've spoken about this, but as far as towers, the harbingers have not stopped, and what, the last harbinger that is continuing is that tower. That tower. Yeah, the harbingers haven't stopped. Apparently, they just keep on rolling in, and uh, the only one seeing them is uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. I keep asking, has he found these in uh, iPad commercials? Is that where he's discovered these uh, harbingers? Represents the defiance of the nation. Represents the vow, and we've spoken about it. It has not stopped. This is the this is the tower where if you go to the top beam, you find the yeah. The photograph on the video screen is the new Freedom Tower there that they've re, you know where it built where the uh, twin towers used to be. President's writing on the top beam that is putting the vow of destruction that that is that parallels the vow of Isaiah nine ten that brought destruction to it. Yeah, um, they. Again, um, got to point this out. You know, where on the Freedom Tower were we actually defying God? The Israel now, our leader is putting that on their vow of defiance, tower of defiance. A defiance against whom? If the, I thought it was a defiance against terrorists, and you're saying it's a defiance against God? Really? Defiance. Well, that vow, that rising of that tower, has paralleled America's fall from God. It is, it's a spot for instance, example, and this sin. May 2013, the spire goes up. It reaches its final height. Within one month of that, America strikes down the defense of marriage as the tower reaches its height. End of May 2015, the top is finally opened, the tower complete. Two days later, the tower is struck, that top is struck by lightning three times. Yeah, um, the New York City skyline all of the uh, the buildings there have large lightning rods on them, the tall ones, uh, because them being struck by lightning, lightning just happens to be a pretty normal event. It happens quite often. And as and within one month of that tower reach being opened at top at completion, America strikes down marriage this summer. And so it's as if the the, the tower reaches its completion. Post hoc ergo poppycock again. The apostasy reaches its completion. But then, right after the Supreme Court struck down marriage as we know it, the tower that was born, literally birthed out of the words of Isaiah 9:10, the actual vow of judgment, is crowned on top with the colors of defiance. And if we have the picture here, yeah, look, there, look at the top. There's the Freedom Tower with the colors of the rainbow celebrating the Supreme Court decision, you know, to uh, legalize same-sex marriage throughout the land. Um, yeah, so, which, by the way, again, it's absolutely terrible, but it has nothing to do with some kind of harbingers at all. These guys are selling stuff. They're called prepper supplies. Mm-hmm. That's the rainbow celebrating the desecration of marriage. That is the Tower of Defiance celebrating with the, with the colors of defiance of God. And, it's the, it, and the, the colors happen right above where the president wrote the words of defiance. So here, the second abomination 
that brings judgment, sexual and immorality. And what's crazy, Rabbi, that building is the harbinger. Yes. That he's written about. That's where the 9-11 towers came down. It hasn't stopped. That's continued. It keeps that going. Tower, yeah. And, and now the the tower is up, as you see it on the screen. The building's there. Yeah. And uh, it's it's the sign of a, of rebellion of not repenting. Yeah. So apparently, this is proof that you know this God's judgment is you know is coming like really soon, like March of 2016. You know when the Great Tribulation begins. Uh huh. Yeah. But saying we will be bigger and yeah. better and greater as Israel did. Yeah, it was from the beginning. I mentioned that John Kerry in the Senate said we will build this tower. It will be basically a tower of defiance, defiance, defiance. Well, yeah, defiance against whom? God or the terrorists is now crowned in the colors of defiance as it reached its completion and the Supreme Court reached that completion. So here is. The- and, and all of this coming at the end of the Shemitah. Yeah. It, which the, nothing happened during the Shemitah, like nothing at all. Which means fall. So that and, and as it was. in Nothing happened, though, right? Right, yeah, this whole Shemitah was a non-event. What happened on Elul 29? Nothing. Forgive me, but I... We were led to believe that the uh, the U.S. economy was going to experience a catastrophic meltdown, and it didn't. I'm, I'm going to keep repeating this because some people have narrow vision and they don't see what God is doing all over the world. They don't see that other countries uh, can have an effect on the Word of God just as America. It's not all happening in America. Now, the third abomination that brings judgment, when Israel drove out God, they say nature abhors a vacuum. Well, there's a spiritual vacuum, and that is that something's going to come in its place. When Israel drove out God, the gods came in. The idols came in. Yeah, I'm going to point this out here. Remember I noted earlier that uh, when Israel was killing their children, their infants, they were doing so as part of ritual sacrifice to the gods Molech and Baal, right? Which means that uh, what was happening, idolatry was already taking place. So even chronologically, supposedly, that how these harbingers are showing up, the the third president, the third abomination has now shown up. And, you know, it, yeah, this is just utter nonsense. And notice they're playing off of good conservative. Teaching, and I mean this in the sense that idolatry is a sin, absolutely. Homosexuality, flat out sin. Um, you know, murdering your unborn child, a sin. You know, and so they're not playing to liberals, they're playing to conservatives. But what they're doing is they're adding this other thing that, oh, we've got the inside track, we've cracked the code. These are the this is the mystery of the towers. This uh, will tell you what God is up to right now. You know what God, oh, judgment is coming. It's oh, it's just around the corner. In fact, it's in March of 2016 when the Great Tribulation begins. That's what they're doing. We continue. The word in Hebrew for God is Elohim, but Elohim is a plural word. Really meaning God is more than, you can, never, you can never have a word that sums up God. He's more than whatever you say. Elohim means God. But when they turned away from God, Elohim of God was replaced by Elohim, which also means the gods. So when you turn away from God, you turn to the gods. There's no middle ground. And so the idols come in and they start serving the idols. And one of the words for idol in Hebrew, the same word means abomination. 
It's, that's how close these are connected. So when you read about the abomination in Revelation, desolation, or the abomination in, in the, when, when Paul writes, this is, this is the abomination it literally in Hebrew means idol as well. So, it's that, so even that is, is there. So what it's saying is that that brought judgment. God, in the last days of Israel, there were images of the gods appearing all over the land, in, even in the temple, idols, and then judgment came. What about America? Right, so judgment is coming if he can prove that this last appearance of the of the Tower Abominations has now appeared in the United States. At least so the thinking goes. I mean, I do think he got this from an iPad commercial. America has been driving God out of its out of its culture, out of its out of its public square. When you do that, it never stays neutral. Other things come in. Evil comes in, immorality comes in, the gods come in, idols come in, so a nation that was meant to praise God now praises immorality, serves lust, serves money, serves the creature, serves sensuality, serves creation, serves the wor- worships the works of its hands. The gods of, of, su- of prosperity, the idols of success, becomes an idolatrous nation. Idols are abomination to God. But could the sign of the third abomination have appeared in America where in the last days of Israel... The image of the gods appear are all over the land. Okay, okay. So has the last uh, the appearance of the last abomination right before judgment has it appeared in the United States? Please let us know. We need to know. I mean, this is just terrible. What if it has? I need to go buy prepper food from from Jim Baker, even though it tastes like dog vomit. Oh, this is terrible. Are you ready? It's about to be revealed. Here we go. Could it actually have manifested? What happens if you see it? I'm going to tell you in a, in a, show you something in a moment. There is another tower, another tower that represented America's glory for most of the 20th century. That would be the Empire State Building. America rising. It's the Empire State Building. That was the tallest building on earth for 40 years. The, on the day when marriage was struck down, they also lit up the Empire State Building, once the symbol of America and its glory. But soon after that, one month later, something else happened to the Empire State Building. And I want you to see it, if you haven't. All right. And what he's showing is a, well, they, they projected the face of the false god Kali onto the Empire State Building. Well, there you go. We're doomed, folks. God's going to judge us. Starting in March of 2016. Put it in your calendars. Woo. That, what, what is, is that? that? That is the abomination. That is a foreign god. Yeah, it, it sure is. Yeah, that, that really is. Um, but again, that doesn't mean it's some kind of an abomination and a harbinger of God's pending judgment. I don't think they left it up there. I don't see people in New York City bowing down in blood sacrifice to Kali every night. Ah. That is an image of a foreign god, undoubtedly the largest image of a foreign god ever on planet Earth. The oh. face is the is the length of the building basically what god is it that is the god kali that what is kali kali is the god of darkness this now, is darkness now wait a minute how did this happen i mean who d- they lit it up they were doing something celebrating the world and creation and they said something that they're appointing kali to be the defender of the world oh look at that this is, this is over New York City. Now, in the last days of Israel, the foreign gods appear. Here is a foreign god, god of darkness. Now, think about this. 
They made this image by projecting thousands of lumens of light to make an image of Kali, the god of darkness. They used light for darkness. Yeah, they sure did. Can you believe that? Oh, no. God says, woe to those who put light for darkness. There it is. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> when God says, woe to those who put light for darkness or called darkness light. Um, he wasn't referring to using a projector to project the, an image onto a building. Oh, man, is this nuts. Oh, my goodness, Rabbi. How come I haven't seen this, Sasha? And, you guys, you usually show me everything. <laughs> yeah, the reason you haven't seen this is because this is as, you know, as William Tapley-esque as you can possibly get without actually crossing the line into utter insanity. Unfortunately, I think Khan is uh, he's not insane like William Tapley is. I, I think he's just duplicitous and knows that he's playing to a crowd and making a lot of money. And I mean a ton of money, uh, basically frightening people with this nonsense. Yeah, does the Bible reveal the tower judgments and some pattern of abominations that are supposed to appear right before God's judgment, which begins in March of 2016? Buy yourself now a, a seven-year supply of food from uh, Jim Baker. Um, it, no, it doesn't. This isn't a biblical teaching. This is fear-mongering and mixing you know, what the Bible teaches regarding sin with eschatological prognostications that have nothing to do with sound biblical exegesis. This is utterly an abomination, and it's a, it's all part of the great apostasy. I think it's a, I think this is a harbinger of, well, the end times. You know, because you know, if people rebel against God's word, don't teach false doctrine and gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear, and Jonathan Kahn be one of them. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a sermon from Western Hills Church in Oklahoma City. Yeah, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
January 2nd, college students and young adults are invited to Concordia University, Chicago for an evening drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This Higher Things Lutheran Unconference starts and ends with worship. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will speak for just 20 minutes each. Dinner will be provided with a Q&A session. Registration is just $100 per person. For more information, go to higherthings.org. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. And I honestly, I was not able to figure out who is this guy preaching. So if you know, email me. Talk back, fightingforthefaith.com. Let's put in the subject, I know who he is. That would help. But let's do this right. The Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Western Hills Church, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The name of the sermon is from the sermon series entitled Winning Stories of Victory. The sermon we'll be listening to is called Winning Against All Odds. And this is an example of ripping a verse out of context, making it sound like it's about something that it's not about, and then launching into another text to inspire you to, you know, to win. Because, you know, Christianity is all about being a conqueror, being victorious in the Christian life, you know? And like I said, I don't know who's teaching this. So um, if you know, send me an email. We'll add it to the program notes with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is the sermon entitled Winning Against All Odds. Here we go. Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Thank you for those who set up close. That's always encouraging as we worship and as we play the piano. And those of you who are here on time to sing with us, thank you so much. And thank you all for being here with us this morning and being a part of this service. Um, it's our goal this morning. We just want to uh, focus our hearts on the Lord at this time. And we want to begin to let the Lord speak to us through his word and, and let him transform our lives, change our lives. And so um, I want to just invite you with me now to engage in the scriptures. And I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 37. And that's where we're going to be spending some time in the word this morning. Romans 8, 37. While you're finding that, we're going to uh, continue our series, our sermon series on winning this morning. And that's going to be uh, what we focus on is that sermon series uh, winning. And the scriptures are really clear that through Christ, we are overcomers. We have, we have beaten death. We have beaten sin. And it's not by our own efforts, but it's because of Christ. Yeah, actually, Christ is the one who's beaten death and we are in him. Yeah, get your theological facts straight. This is really sloppy stuff right here and what he has done for us. And so as believers, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And, and that is an assurance that we have because of 
because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us as gods, we can have that assurance that we are overcomers. And so I want us to focus on that word winning this morning, stories of victory. I want us to focus on that word overcomers this morning as we, as we look at this sermon series uh, and as we look at today's message, which is winning against all odds. That's our, that's our topic for this morning, winning against all odds, because you guys know very well that at times we all face what seem like impossible situations. And I'm sure that you've been in situations in your life where you seem like whatever your efforts were going towards, whatever your goals were, whatever you were striving towards. So this is the setup. Apparently we've all faced, you know, what seems like impossible situations in our lives. Is that what Romans 8.37 is about? Let's take a look at the text that he's going to twist first so that you can see what's going on. 8.37, out of context, reads, Now, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the whole verse. And you're sitting there going, well, what things? You see where it says, now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is it that we're more than conquerors when we're facing difficulties in our relationships? Is it that we're more than conquerors when we're facing difficulties in our finances? Nope. We're going to use our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and they are context, context, and context. And watch what happens when we put this verse back in context. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that con- who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's right. Christ is interceding for us. Verse 35. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? You can say nope. Or distress? Nope. Or persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Nope. For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is describing the persecution and tribulations that people face as a result of confessing Christ to be Savior and Lord. He is not writing about us being conquerors when it comes to having a bad hair day. Just want to make that clear. We continue towards that something came along and it made it impossible. It seemed impossible to overcome whatever was in front of you. And so I'm sure we've all felt those feelings before of just being faced with a giant and not being able, not knowing how to get past the giant. Not knowing- Yeah, we, I was faced with a giant. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. This is an allegorical giant then? How to move around, to, to get to where we were going. And, and so we face impossible battles in our lives. And, and I want to give some examples of those impossible battles. At times we face impossible battles in our finances and we really, we really struggle because, you know, yeah, uh, Romans eight thirty seven has nothing to do with facing, uh, you know, impossible finances. No, it, it's talking about Christian persecution. Those times when things get tight, but you can make it. And then there's those times that I'm sure if you've been, uh, if you're an adult here, you know, if you've been out on your own for a while, then you know 
that um, there's times that you look at things and you just go, I don't know how we're going to make it. You look at the money and you just say, well, we have to pay for this. And this crisis came up and there's still these bills and we need to eat something. And you just look at all the things that you need to pay for. And you look at how much money's in the account and there's not enough money. And, and so you face an impossible battles in your finances, or maybe you face impossible. Yeah. Again, the apostle Paul was not writing about facing impossible circumstances in our finances there in Romans eight in relationships and you and you deal with uh, struggles in relationships and especially marriage um there can be what seem like impossible battles uh for us to win in marriage there can be times where yeah, paul wasn't talking about uh, overcoming impossible marriage situations there in 837 either you know there's times that we can fix it just like in finances you can just work a little harder or or earn a little more money or cut a couple expenses and you make it but then there's other times you can't well that's the same way in our marriage sometimes Things are going all right, and um, you know then then some rough patches come, but you're able to talk it through and make it work. And then other times, you just wonder, based on choices that were made, and actions, and behaviors, and feelings that were hurt, and hearts that were broken, you wonder if things could ever be right again in the marriage. You wonder if you could ever. Yeah, Paul wasn't writing about that in Romans eight thirty seven have what you once had before or if it was lost forever and so we we face impossible battles in our marriages we face impossible battles um when it comes to forgiving others forgiving others who have wronged us yeah paul wasn't writing about that either again sometimes it's not too hard to forgive sometimes you understand sometimes you just don't understand you know what I mean when it comes yeah, to Yeah, clearly you have no idea or understand what this text is about because you've ripped it out of context Sometimes you just don't get why that person did that thing and, and it hurt you so bad and you're not, you're not sure how to get over it. I mean, maybe you even say with your mouth, I forgive you, but that doesn't release anything. And it's, it's still there. It's still bottled up inside. And it feels like an impossible battle to forgive someone who has wronged us, or we face impossible battles when it comes to, uh, winning against entangling sins. Yeah, he wasn't talking about those either, although entangling sins are, you know, that's a real challenge that Christians do face. I'm sure you guys have been there before. I know I have been there. Um, I know that there are sins in my life that, um, that, that have been in the past that just seem to hold me down. And those same sins to this day are some of my greatest temptations to sin. Whenever I'm being tempted, the enemy knows my failures and my weaknesses, and he pokes right at those perfect places to try to get me to engage in sin again. And he knows what those things are. And so he's fighting against me and we have these entangling sins and they can be, they can feel impossible to overcome. In fact, if you're living in those entangling sins now, you may, you may even be able to fully agree this morning and say that, you know, what's really sad is that uh, entangling sins or besetting sins, this is a serious topic. And because he's twisting Romans eight out of context He's not actually helping the Christians there in his church um, with a very real threat and problem and temptation that, w- that uh, many Christians struggle with. Me right now, I don't know how to overcome entangling sins. I've tried. I've confessed it to God. I've prayed prayers. I've said that's the last time. I've set up fence laws to try to direct my steps so that I won't go back to it. And yet, every- Have you tried repenting and being forgiven? I end up back in those entangling sins. So there can be entangling sins that seem impossible to overcome. Um, 
Another thing that can feel impossible to overcome is the pain of grief. The pain of grief. Can yeah, Paul wasn't talking about that either in Romans eight thirty seven. Impossible to overcome. Will there ever be a time in my life that I stop grieving over this loss of relationship, over this loss of a loved one who's gone on? Will there ever be a time that I stop feeling grief? And grief can feel like an impossible battle to win. And just when you think you've started to overcome it, another, another wave comes and it hits you again and it knocks you back down and you try to get up and grief can feel so exhausting, so impossible for us to overcome. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with uh, some other things that can feel impossible, um, dealing with battles uh, that deal with disappointment and rejection. Yeah, Paul wasn't talking about disappointment or rejection in Romans 8.37. Not at all. Just read the context. Disappointment and rejection. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jerry talked about disappointment, and he shared his story of the greatest disappointment of his life, which was losing his wife, the wife of his youth, Debbie, um, to cancer. And so that was, I believe, did he say seven years ago? Something seven years ago. And so um, and so that that felt, that can feel like, Anything like that, those disappointments can feel like an impossible battle. It can be a disappointment in that category. It could just, it could just be a disappointment that you were, you were going on this direction with this job and this, and this career choice. And then, um, and then all of a sudden it gets changed and overcoming those feelings of discouragement, disappointment that come from, um, that come from those disappointments in our lives. And so, or last week you may remember Nathan and I sharing about um, winning against rejection. And we shared the story. Yeah, Paul wasn't writing about rejection either there in Romans eight thirty seven. Have you actually taken a hermeneutics and proper exegesis class? Just asking because you're not demonstrating any like basic skills that are necessary to rightly handle God's word here. Of Sarah and Abraham and how Abraham, uh, Sarah's husband, rejected his wife, Sarah. And so you may remember that story. Um, what? <laughs> Abraham rejected, really? Yeah, no, that's not how that went down. And sometimes rejection just hits so deep that you wonder if you'll ever overcome those feelings of rejection. Maybe you will always feel rejected by those people who constantly rejected you or bullied you um, at some point. Or maybe because you were told something through rejection, you were told something over and over and over again, you ended up believing it about yourself. And so you feel that rejection and now you reject yourself for those things that you've been told. Yeah. Paul wasn't talking about rejecting myself either. You need to feel rejected by. And so now you reject and you wonder if you'll ever be able to accept yourself again, if you'll ever. Yeah. That's not what Paul's writing about there in Romans eight thirty seven be able to be okay with who you are, or if you'll always be dissatisfied. And so you have those impossible battles of rejection and trying to overcome those. And then, you know, probably the, the fundamental one for this morning, the foundational battle that we all face is the battle to make disciples and live kingdom centered lives. And honestly, and what live kingdom centered lives? What does that mean? That sounds scary. Wrong there. That kingdom centered life. It all comes down to that. I mean, in any of those battles that we face, if we'll be kingdom citizens living as followers of Christ, then Christ has promised us the victory. So we uh, no, I don't know where you're getting your theology from, dude, but the Bible doesn't teach what you just said. That sounds like some creepy communitarianism that's somehow crept in over there. Hmm. The key 
we know the solution. We know the answer is Christ, but still at times it can feel so difficult to overcome these impossible battles. Even with that knowledge, even with that hope in Christ, we still feel the weight of these pressures and these other situations bearing down on our souls. And, and it, at times it just feels like the odds are stacked against us. Yeah, it does. Yeah, sure does. But that's not what uh, Romans eight thirty seven is about. It just feels like that, okay, if it was just this or just this or just this, then I'd be fine. But you put those three together and how will I even make it? How will I make it emotionally? How will I make it financially? How will I make it mentally? How will I make it? So notice this is the setup. So, yeah, I mean, apparently whatever biblical text he's going to go to next, it's all about how do you make it financially, relationally, psychologically, you know, whatever Lee you can come up with. Um, Yeah, he's already twisted God's word. So there's like no way to recover at this point. He's off the rails already. And I don't think this train can right itself. I just can't see past this situation. And so hopefully you're following me at this point that we need to talk about winning against all odds because of- why? Cause that's not what uh, Romans eight thirty seven is teaching. We're going to know how to win. Yeah, we can. Okay. We can learn how to win over. Uh, so we need to learn how to win. So what are the strategies that you can employ? You know, the applications that you, so that you can learn how to win and, you know, apparently fulfill Romans eight thirty seven. Good night. This is awful. Uh, over discouragement, um, we can w- learn how to win over rejection. But what about? And, and we're going to look at some more in weeks to come. But what about when these things start to stack up on us? What about when these things start to just build and build and snowball in our lives to the point that we don't know what to do and we can't really see past it? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is winning against all odds. I don't think we're going to talk about Jesus. Apparently not. Uh, Maybe he's uh, hogtied and sitting in the back of the church in the green room, you know. Tell you what, Americans love an underdog, right? Thank you so much. Americans love an underdog. They love love rooting for the underdog. You know, uh, the film Rudy. Uh, I know probably many of you have seen that film about the football player at Notre Dame uh, who went and he's just a little guy and he got in the game after years of hard work. And uh, we love rooting on those stories. All those stories of, of I think about the sports uh, movies uh, that, that center around teams and you see that team who's behind and there's just no way they can catch up. And then in the end, they beat all the odds and they win. We love cheering on the underdog. You know, if I'm watching a football game, team, or, or game with two teams I don't care about, I'd root for the underdog, you know, and I watch that game and I root for him. I mean, that's just how we are. We're wired that way. And so when it comes to winning against all odds, we, we like the concept of beating the odds. That's something that's appealing to us um, as humans. We like the concept of over. Yeah, and who cares? What does that have to do with sound, soundly exegeting and properly understanding a biblical text? I mean, but when it happens to us, we look at other people's stories and we see it progress and we go, oh, well, that makes sense. But we're, when we're in the middle of the fight, when we're in the middle of the battle, it can be it can be tough to believe that we're going to beat the odds. It can be really tough. But Jesus has assured us through his word that we will beat the odds. And now we're going to look at Romans 8, 30. Yeah, actually, that's not a promise from Christ. You familiar with all of the Christian martyrs out there, the people who died for their confession of faith? That, which, by the way, the persecution and suffering that goes along with confessing Christ is what Paul's talking about there. They didn't beat the odds. They ended up you know, being martyred for the Christian faith. 
And yet, even in their death, they still conquered. That's the point that Paul's making. And this passage says, no, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I want us to look at this passage carefully for just a second, and I want us to see two important things in this passage, okay? You're reading it out of context. I put it back in its context already and showed you that these things is referring to Christian suffering and persecution for the name of Christ. First of all, to win against all odds, we must believe that together— we are more than conquerors. Okay. Yeah, the text is not about winning against all odds. You're twisting God's word badly. I'm going to illustrate this even further later on in this message, but I want you to see it in this verse right now, okay? Notice that this never talks that this verse does not talk about an individual. It does not say Yeah, hang on, hang on. Y'all smell that? Yeah, that's communitarianism right there. Yeah, go listen to my lecture on resistance is futile. You'll be assimilated into the community. Yeah, this guy, he's been influenced by communitarians. uh, That in all these things, you individually are more than conquerors. No, this passage says, and can you put that passage back up, Tommy, just a second? Look at it right here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Us And which things is Paul referring to there? Overcoming rejection and things like that? No, it's persecution and suffering as a Christian. The first thing I want to point out, and I'm going to show this even more later on in the scriptures, because as I studied for this message and I looked up verses about victory, I didn't... Verses out of context about victory is not how you actually rightly teach God's word. One verse about victory where the emphasis was on the individual. Now, I I looked up, I didn't read the whole New Testament, but I read a lot of passages and did some keyword searches, and I did not find one verse on victory, on winning, on being a conqueror that just said, you individually are more than a conqueror. No, the first thing we have to recognize this morning, now you can go back to that next slide, Tommy. The next thing, the first thing we have to realize is we have to believe that together, we are more than conquerors, okay? Not in... Yeah, again, communitarianism, he's been influenced by it heavily. Visually, we are more than conquerors. Together, we are more than conquerors. And then the second thing that I want us to see in this passage is, and us to understand, is that we must believe that the ultimate victory is through Jesus. And so, Tommy, go back to that verse for me one more time. I want you to see it in the scripture right here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through him who loved us. And this is referring to Jesus Christ through him. Yeah, yeah that, that part's true. Who loved us. And so we, we win together. Let's go back to both those points. We win together as we fight the battle together, not individually. And we win as we believe that ultimately the victory belongs to Jesus. It does not belong to us. It belongs to him. He fights the battle and we're benefactors of that victory. If you're going to overcome the odds, you got to get these two things. There are no lone rangers in the church. Yeah, uh, Romans 8 has nothing to do with overcoming the odds. That's not what it's about. There are no lone rangers winning in the church. They're not winning. People who are doing it on their own are failing on their own. That's not God's design. 
it's not God's way. It's clear in his word, and we're going to look at it. It's clear in his word that together we win, not individually we win. We need one another. We need the body of Christ. And so we got to win together, but we also have to realize that, um, that the victory ultimately belongs to Jesus. He's ultimately the one who brings the victory. And apart from him, even together, we can't win. It's his spirit inside us that empowers us to win. And so we need to realize both these. Yeah, where in scripture does it say his spirit empowers us to win? Yeah, not familiar with that text. That's a false doctrine right there. So that's the setup for this message. Now I get to share with you a story from God's word. And the goal of this story. Yeah, apparently that now we're going to get a story that will inspire you to, you know, you become more than conquerors together, you know, not individually. Is to help you understand how we can be overcomers against the odds, how we can win against the odds. And so I want to ask you just to engage in the story with me. Really get this story in your mind as I share it uh, so that you can let that word of God that is dwelling in your mind move to your heart. And God can use it to bring conviction in your life about the things that you need to work on, that you need to change, that God wants to call you out on this morning. So, um, so before the story, just a little background. Um, last week, Nathan and I shared about Abraham and Sarah. And so we talked about uh, them. And if you were here with us last week, you remember that we shared in our background that Abraham is the father of the nation Israel. And so he's the one, when, when the scriptures talk about Israel, they're talking about the descendants of Abraham. Um, and so that's the nation is, was formed because of the descendants of, of Abraham. And so um, our story is going to take place uh, concerning the Israelites and some of the kings of the Israelites. Now, if you remember, um, we mentioned it briefly last week, but one of the things that um, God asked, God made a promise to Abraham. And it was a covenant promise. And last week, we, we kind of explained covenant a little bit, but I want to hit on that again. Something interesting about a covenant promise is it's a two-way promise. So there's commitments that one, one party makes to the other, and there's commitments that the other party makes back to the one. that made. The, and so it's a mutual commitment, okay? But it's different than a contract because in a contract, if you violate one side, of the, of the commitment, then the other side is released, okay? But when it comes to covenant relationship, when it comes to covenant promises, both sides vow to keep the covenant even if the other side doesn't. That's, that's like the, the difference. And so if, if God makes a covenant with Israel, well, then Israel is to keep that covenant with God even if God doesn't keep his covenant, but God always keeps his covenant. God always keeps his promises, And if God has made a covenant with Israel, then he has vowed that he will keep that covenant with them, even if they don't keep their part. So that's, that's a covenant relationship. Now, the cool thing is, and I just have to throw this in here for free, but the cool thing is, um, for us as Christians, we've entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. In other words, when we mess up, he's faithful to us to keep all the promises that he's made. We get all the benefits from Christ, even when we mess up. I have to throw that in there because it, it ties right into this message. It's one of the ways we're overcomers. We can beat the odds because no matter how many times we mess up, he's faithful to us. So we need to remember that. This, Yeah, can you talk about that in, in the context of God's forgiveness and the blood of the new covenant, which is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins? But God, in, in the story that we're going to tell today, 
God has entered a covenant relationship with Israel and between Israel and himself. Okay. And so the sign, one of the signs of that covenant relationship is that God instructed the, the men of Israel to be circumcised. And so that was a sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now that's important background for the story because, uh, in our story, Jonathan's going to say something today. Our story's going to be about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And, uh, Jonathan is going to say something today that, that will matter that you know that information. Okay. And then a few other background things where the story falls in the timeline of history. It falls in the beginning of the age of the Kings in Israel. Saul is currently King of Israel and he was the first King of the nation of Israel. So that's where it falls. And his son, Jonathan was a great warrior. And so we have Saul and Jonathan. Um, Saul had a large army at his disposal, but right before our story takes place, he opts out of keeping that whole army together and sends most of them home, but kept 3,000 select men to help him in the battle, okay? Well, little did Jonathan and Saul know that the Philistine army, which was their enemy, the Philistines, they were mounting a huge attack with several thousand more men and weapons and equipment than what Saul had reserved. So they didn't know that they were, that they were uh, by sending them home, that they were going to lose a, a battle or at least face difficult odds, okay, uh, overwhelming odds in the battle. So they didn't know that, um, but that's what happened. Well, when the people saw that they were in a tight spot in a situation facing that giant that we were talking about, when they saw that, they began to hit in caves and holes and anywhere else that they could find to hide as the Philistine army began to come through the land. And so they began to hide themselves. And the Philistines set up uh, garrisons around Israel And they took all of Israel's weapons. And only Jonathan and Saul, the scripture says, were left with weapons and so uh, with a sword. Everybody else lost their weapons. And it got so bad that even the Israelites had to go to the Philistine garrisons to get their axes and their their plowshares sharpened so that they could work in the fields. So they lost all their weapons to the Philistine army. Talk about winning against the odds or at least fighting against the odds. This is looking like a hopeless situation. If If you're talking about battle strategy... Yeah, the army that has thousands more men and uh, all these weapons and chariots and horses is going to beat the army without any weapons and only 3,000 men. So they're facing impossible odds in this story. So the Philistines had all these. Yeah, they were facing impossible odds. And it's all a parable about, you know, the difficult circumstances that you find yourself in. In other words, it doesn't even matter if this is real history. No, 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 no. It's just an allegory pointing to you. It's called Narcissus, by the way. Garrison set up, and um, Saul had made a really bad choice leading up to this story. Um, he had made sacrifices in a way that wasn't pleasing to God, and he had been rebuked by a prophet, Samuel. And so things hadn't gone well for Saul. So Saul, actually, at the beginning of our story, is also hiding in a cave, pomegranate cave. And he's hiding there with about 600 men and one of the priests uh, of Israel. And so, so that's kind of the situation that's set up. All the army, all the people hiding in caves, Philistines coming through, taking their weapons. Now even the king himself is hiding in a cave, um, trying to protect himself from the Philistine army that is much more powerful, much more manpower than the army they're facing. So that's our background. And And remember, the story here is all about you learning how to, you know, the steps that you need to apply in order for you to become an overcomer and to be victorious the way you're supposed to, you know, like, you know, Romans 837 style, although he didn't properly cite Romans 837. Weird. We continue. 
And now I'm going to begin the story from God's word. So Jonathan was with this young man, his armor bearer. And in case you don't know that term armor bearer, an armor bearer is someone who would bear the armor, carry the armor and the weaponry of a person of great status, or in this case of royalty, like Jonathan, the son of the king. And so uh, Jonathan had an armor bearer. Now you need to know some things about an armor bearer. Armor bearers were, were legit warriors, okay? They, they were really, really powerful warriors. They knew how to get each other, how to protect people in battle, how to navigate the battlefield. Their job was to carry the armor and the weaponry of the person they were serving, but their job was also to be the personal bodyguard of that person in battle. So when Jonathan or Saul went into battle, the armor bearer, he didn't focus on the overall, you know, moving with the men. He stayed right with his guy and his job was to be the bodyguard of that guy. So these guys were warriors, armor bearers. They were, they were big, strong guys. Um, they had a strong bond with the person that they were going into combat with. Um, oftentimes, armor bearers would have grown up with the person that they're fighting in war with. They would have trained with them since, since youth, and they would have, it would have been just second nature to move together. It wouldn't have been awkward, but they would have flowed well on a battlefield, and when one moved, the other one would know how to get their back. So that's an armor bearer, okay? So Jonathan, in the beginning of our story, Jonathan turns to his young, the young man, the armor bearer, and he says, hey, come on, uh, see, that, see that passage over there with the really dangerous cliff on that side and the really dangerous cliff on that side? Um, yeah, all right, we're going to go over that dangerous passage, just the two of us, and then we're going to show ourselves to the Philistine army. And, you know, at this point, that could sound pretty, incra- pretty crazy. There's just a couple of them, and they're going to go find a garrison and reveal themselves to that army. Uh, but the armor bearer, uh, oh, and then, and then Jonathan says, um, we should go. We should go because um, who can withhold salvation from the Lord, whether many or few? It's weird. It's like he's reading it, but not reading it. First Samuel 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the, and the name of the other, Sena. And the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other, the south, in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So you'll notice here, it's, it's, what's getting in the way of the biblical text is this guy. You know, his summary isn't exactly accurate. Why don't you just read the text and exegete it along the way? Instead, he's trying to summarize it and then pepper it with quotes from the passage itself, not a way in which you arrive at a sound understanding of of a text, by the way. Oftentimes, there's a reason for that, and the reason is because the person doesn't intend to actually rightly teach the text. 
Who can withhold salvation from the Lord, whether many or few? In other words, hey, if there's a bunch of them over, over there, we can win. And if there's just a few of them over there, we can win. Because perhaps the Lord, this is what Jonathan said to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will work uh, mightily for us today, will fight for us today. So Jonathan had this great faith that he was to get out of the cave, go across the passage and take on a group of Philistines at that garrison. So he tells this to his armor bearer and his armor bearer says, um, do whatever is in your mind. I am with you heart and soul. So Jonathan, I'm sure draws strength from the faith and the confidence of his armor bearer. And they cross this passage together. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, all right, when we arrive, um, we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. And if they say, wait there and we'll come to you, then we'll... Yeah, you'll notice here, I, let me read again that verse that he just somewhat touched on. He said to his armor bearer, do all... Oh, wait, he said to his armor bearer, um, come, let us go over to the garrison of this uncircumcised and maybe that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan here has faith in the Lord, but he's also not going to act presumptuously. He he knows that the Lord can save, but he doesn't want to act in a way that you know basically assumes that God is going to work on their behalf. And so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come on up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So he's, Jonathan trusts the Lord, but he's not going to be presumptuous, and he's going to let circumstances, you know, dictate whether the Lord is with them in this battle or not. You know, and so this shows great faith in the Lord on the part of Jonathan. We continue. We'll wait, and they'll come to us. But he, but he said, but if they say, come up here, then we'll go up, And when we go up, we'll know that that will be the sign that God has given them into our hands. That'll be the sign. And so they're waiting down. They they get out there and they show themselves to the garrisons and the uh, to the Philistines and the Philistines crowd. And they say, hey, look, the Israelites are crawling out of their holes. Come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. And so Jonathan turns to his armor bearer. He says, the Lord's given them into our hands. Let's go. And so get this military strategists, people who like military stuff. They crawl with their hands and feet, the two of them, up the side of this rock cliff. And they're going to fight the unknown number of soldiers over the crest of that cliff. So if you, you probably don't have to know anything about warfare to know that that's bad battle tactics. You don't take the low ground, climb up with your hands and feet, get to the top. Yeah, but they know that the Lord has given them into their hands. It doesn't matter tactics at this point. God is going to run the table for them the place where there's an unknown number of enemies and try to fight them. That just doesn't happen. But there was great faith here on Jonathan's part, on his armor bearer's part, that God was going to deliver them. Indeed, there was. Was going to give them the victory that day. And so um, now the scripture says they get to the top of the hill. And when they get to the top of the hill, Jonathan goes before uh, the armor bearer. And the scripture says they fall before Jonathan and they're slain by his armor bearer. Now, that's a real graphic picture. And when I read that, it made me think of something that I've learned, uh, that I learned. One time I did this tactical training with Dustin Manus. 
and he taught us different situations. So this ta- this reminded you of when you did tactical training, right? Asked John and Nathan to come up here and help me with this little illustration for you guys. So whenever I went through this tactical training, it was several weeks long. And John uh, or, and Dustin, what he taught us was he was teaching us about how to fight in a group and how if you were in a situation where you were cornered in in an alley, maybe there's a wall over here, a wall over here, a wall behind you, and you're facing crazy odds, um, you know, maybe the three of us against third. Well, we are overcomers, you know, so... I- Crazy odds are the thing we're supposed to be looking for, you know, not, you know, people trying to, to trying to stop us and injure us. Okay. If you're facing these, these incredible odds, he taught some formations that you can use to try to help, um, increase your chances of getting out alive. Okay. And so, um, what you do in the formation is you put the strongest guy first. (laughs) That would probably be John. (laughs) So you put the you put the strongest guy up front, and um, his goal, uh, what John's going to do, me and Nathan are going to hold him up, and what John's going to do is we're going to make sure that he stays on his feet, and he's going to take the most damage as we fight. <laughs> so me and John, uh, me and Nathan are holding John up, okay? And now this would happen very fast. This is not something you would do real slow because your goal is not to kill everybody out there or injure everyone out there. Your goal is to get out alive. That's what you're trying to do. And the odds of you winning against 30 are slim. So you get in this thing and you would basically charge together. Now I'm going to ask Justin and Joe to come up here. All right. And so we're going to turn this way, John. Yeah. Um, how does this help us understand this text? Because the Lord gave the Philistines into the hand of Jonathan and his armor bearer. This was a miraculous victory. Come back this way a little bit. And we're going to do... You can even argue Jonathan won this by faith. In in slow motion. So John and and Joe are part of that 30 group that's coming at us. Justin and Joe. All right. So here we are. And so what would... (laughs) Put it down. (laughs) We don't even want to get hurt, little brother. So so what's going to happen now? If we had any weapons, John would actually not hold the weapon. Um, if he had any weapon, he would probably hold something that would just offer protection for him because John's goal is to hand people off to me and Nathan. And so if we had any weapons, Nathan and I would be the ones who have the weapons. His goal is to just get them off their feet, get them unbalanced. And then our goal is to help hold him up and push him through so that we can get through this group, like a bowling alley, you know, just right through and out to the other side so that we can run and get out of there. Okay. So slow motion, Joe's coming at John and we're moving through. And so John's going to have some practical, relevant information right here. You know, if you ever find yourself in an alley, I mean, it's nice that your pastor prepared you for such a circumstance, you know, Take him and pass him off, and maybe I'm going to give him a knee or something, you know, and pull him through. He's going to get an elbow, but we're all staying together, and we're working our way through. So that's that part of the illustration. Now, one more thing before they go. Um, Yes, you can clap. (laughs) Thank you, guys. So one more thing before we go. Now, let's put this in terms of this story that I'm telling you about Jonathan and his armor bearer. So, Jonathan, come on up. It's fitting. That you're Jonathan. In the so this is supposed to inspire you to overcome the impossible situations in your life. Are you feeling rejection? Are you feeling despondent? To, are your finances a mess? Well, this will just, you know, give you the inspiration to get out there and fight. So if Jonathan's up here 
if I'm his armor bearer, we're trained in battle together. So if Jonathan moves left, I know how to step in and get his back. And then if he moves back to the right, I know how to roll. And it's probably not awkward like that. It probably looked really legit. So, so thank you. You can give these guys a hand. Thank you guys. So this is, this is uh, what, what I pictured when I read this story, when I first heard this story. This is what I pictured. I, I thought as soon as he said they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slayed him, I thought about that formation that we had learned and that it's part of just a logical form of attack. And so they come through, and here's, here's what the scripture says. The scripture says that they get to the top of the hill, and that day Jonathan and his armor bearer slay about 20 people, in the, uh, 20 warriors of the Philistines in, in the distance of about half an acre. And they, and they slay all 20. They, they wipe out that garrison. And when, when the word spreads that this had happened, the Philistine armies begin to fear. And God sends this huge earthquake that just rumbles all the camps. And they become really afraid. And in the end, the confidence of Saul and the army is boosted. And they head out into battle and they and they get the victory they get the victory in the so how does this inspire me to overcome the impossible situations in my life you know marriage finances uh, depression things like that so so that's how our story concludes so it's a pretty neat story from scripture and i i really enjoy those stories of underdogs where a couple guys go out and they win against all odds and so yeah it's an inspiring underdog story just like rudy yeah now, here's the question. What can we learn from this story? What does God have for us this morning as we look at this story? Well, I want to go, I want to first point something out. Jonathan and his armor bearer did not win this victory. They did not win the battle. The person who won the battle was the Lord. Jonathan had confidence from the very... Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, that per- he said, perhaps... God will fight for us, and if he does, who can withstand the salvation of the Lord, whether many or few? That's his first words to the armor bearer before the armor bearer ever says anything. Jonathan expresses that confidence in God as a person of Israel. Now, So apparently if you want to you know, overcome the difficult, impossible situations in your life, you've you got to have confidence in God that he's going to give you the victory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I left this part out of the story, but I just find it interesting. And, and I want to insert this here. When Jonathan describes that to the armor bearer, he says, he, you know, he says, let's go against the Philistines. But at one point he says, um, let's go against these uncircumcised. And I just found that interesting because Jonathan is recognizing his position with God and their position with God. They are not on the side of the Lord, on his army, but Jonathan is. And there's confidence that comes knowing that you belong to God. And Jonathan had that confidence. He says, let's go against these uncircumcised. That wasn't just some kind of diss, you know, that he was throwing out there against them. This was a, 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 a word of confidence. Let's go against those uncircumcised. They don't belong to the Lord. We do. God will win this battle. In fact, if God wants to save us, who could stand against him, whether many or few? So the confidence that Jonathan had came from the Lord. And he was a great leader in that regard. Jonathan led out in this while everyone else was hiding in caves. Jonathan led out with his armor bearer. And as a great leader, Jonathan called out to one of his men. And that man said, I'm with you, heart and soul. So not only did Jonathan provide great leadership 
and trust in the Lord, but he had the support of someone else who was going to get his back, someone else that he could draw energy from as he went out into battle. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer don't win the victory. The victory comes about because of God. And, and then ultimately they win the war. We're talking again. You can read it in 1 Samuel 13. There's thousands and thousands of different armed men and chariots and horses and armor and weapons. They're nuts going into battle against all that unknown where they're at, have no tactical strategy here whatsoever. Just let's cross the most dangerous path we can find and climb them up with our hands and feet and try to win something. Their confidence was in the Lord. Their confidence was in the Lord and what God was going to do. And so, and then not only that, but not only did God deliver 20 men into their hands, but what about that earthquake? What about that earthquake that shook the ground and caused fear and panic in the hearts of the enemies of God? He brought about that. And then as they're in a panic, then the rest of the army comes, but still the scripture never indicates anywhere that like thousands more joined them. They just won. They were outnumbered, but they won. The odds were stacked against them, but they won. And it all started from Jonathan and his armor bearer trusting in the Lord, putting their hope and their faith in the Lord. So now they had a great battle to fight, Jonathan and his armor bearer did, an important battle as the nation of Israel was God's representation on the earth. God had chosen that he was going to bring himself glory through Israel that he was going to reveal himself to the nations through Israel. Jonathan and his armor bearer had a very important battle to fight. And I want you guys to realize this. This is the next thing I want you to realize is that uh, we, the church, have a very important battle to fight. The greatest battle of this age is the battle of the souls of men, for the souls of men. There is no greater battle in our day and time than the battle for the souls of men. I agree with this. The problem is, is that this is a convoluted sermon. You started off with talking about how we're victorious over, uh, you know, financial difficulties, impossible situations in our relationships and things like that. And now you've switched to, you know, giving kind of a hurrah line. Yeah. Yeah. The battle for the souls of men. I agree. This is quite a pitched battle. This is what we find ourselves in as Christians. But you're just completely all over the map and you're showing no exegetical discipline or that you're even capable of rightly handling a biblical text, even if you can pepper your sermon with true things that, you know, that are valid, you know, points from scripture or what scripture teaches, you're not teaching these texts rightly. There are great battles between nations, but they're not greater than this battle. There are great political battles that are being fought in our country. Even now, as the Supreme Court debates, whether or not marriage will be redefined in our nation, it's an important battle. It's a great battle, but it's not greater than this battle. There are great battles against terrorism and pushing back uh, and and battles that perhaps should be fought that aren't being fought that that people need to get involved in. And I think specifically of ISIS and the, and the murdering of Christians around the globe right now that's going on um, in our world, in our time. And so there's battles against terrorism. Um, But all these battles pale in comparison to the ultimate battle that is being fought in our age, which is the battle for the souls of men. It's the most important battle. And it's one that God has called his church to fight. We have a scheming enemy seeking to work to destroy the souls of men. That's his job. 
He roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. His job, his mission, his aim is to destroy. So we have Satan ready to destroy the souls of men. And on the other side, we have Jesus who has come and conquered sin and death, who has made it possible for salvation to come to all people. And he's calling his church out to be an instrument of glory to win those that God is calling to repentance. He's calling us to be that instrument of glory, to win the souls that he is calling to repentance. And so this is the most important battle in our age. But it seems like when we look at it, that in many ways we're losing the battle. We're losing the battle for the souls of men. I mean, the world is lost and moving further away from truth every day. It's getting further with every generation. Every- yeah, that's because so many churches have abandoned preaching the truth and preaching Christ and are preaching nonsense. Generation is moving further and further away from truth. The odds are stacked against the church in our, in our age, in our world today. The odds are stacked against the church. But I can tell you this, church, because Revelation 19 and 20 prophesies it to be true, that one day Jesus Christ will return again and he will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he will conquer the enemy. And after a period of imprisonment, then the enemy will be destroyed forever. All those who are with him, all the wicked on the earth, they will receive the punishment due their behavior and they will be destroyed and Jesus Christ will reign supremely with his church. Amen to that. And so that, that battle, no matter how impossible the odds, we know the outcome. And that should fill us with hope that we know no matter what we suffer in this life, whether great persecution, whether uh, the suffering in our own body. And here's the odd thing. He's steered into what Romans eight thirty seven is really talking about. Ah, this is just a mess. Whether even the death of ourselves or even worse for me, the death of my loved ones under persecution for the cause of Christ, we know that we can stand knowing that this life is short and that we will reign with him supremely forever and forever and forever. And so that's, we must draw hope from that. We must realize that we will win the victory. And where does that victory come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from God. It's not because of our own works. It's not because that during this life, I did things just right. So God barely made it out of that one. It doesn't work like that. God is able. He is, he will do what he said he will do. He will fulfill his promises. He will fulfill his word and he will crush the enemy before our eyes. We will see a new age when there is no more enemy. There is no more darkness and we will be with the Lord. And the scripture says he'll make a new heaven and a new earth. Which is true. This is, I mean, what he said here is right will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. And we will forever be with the Lord. And we cling to this hope of the resurrection that because Christ is resurrected, we also will be resurrected. So when it comes to winning against all odds, hey, that's where we got to start. We know we're going to win. We know we're going to win because of what Jesus has already declared to be true. But when the odds are stacked against us in this life and everything's pressing around us, How do we function in this life before that day comes, before we see the salvation of the Lord for all the world and all people? How do we function in the here and now? How will we stand up to these these attacks when the odds are so heavily stacked against us? Well, listen, by the hand of the Lord, the church, the church will win over the enemy and we'll do it together. 
We'll do it together. Now, I told you I'd show you some other passages that I found. Let me pop a few of these up on the screen. In Matthew 16, 18, uh, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not upon this rock I will build up John Werner, or upon this rock I'll build up Nathan Redman. Upon this rock I will build my church. And what is that rock? Is it Peter? Uh, Roman Catholics say it's Peter. No, it's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock on which the church will be built. Yo, okay, we continue. Yes, collectively, not individually. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 4.19 says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's speaking to his disciples and he's telling his disciples, come into the battle. Come and join me into the battle. Let me make you into something new. You will prosper in your new purpose that I am giving you. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Together, those disciples followed him. And then together, together. Again, this smells like communitarianism in the worst way. To his disciples collectively, uh, just before his crucifixion in John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, okay, it has the word you, but he's speaking to all of his disciples, okay? In this world, you will have trouble. Um, Got to find it. In this world. Why are you emphasizing collectivism? That's what I want to know. This is a weird emphasis on these words and these texts. Out of context, every one of them. Trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so he's speaking again to his disciples. And then uh, again to his disciples in Acts 1.8, he says, you, again to his disciples, not one individual, his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Again, assuring them of the power they will receive to accomplish the mission that he set before them to send them into battle, but to do it together, not individually together. And then again, Romans eight thirty one, it says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us. Yeah, quoting it out of context again and focusing on the us part as if somehow we're, you know, this is, you know, teaching some kind of collectivist ideology along the lines of communitarianism is a big problem. Together we stand against the enemy. Together we conquer the enemy, not individually, but we do it together. And then Romans 8:37 where we started the sermon, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Together, we are conquerors, not individually. If you've been fighting the battles of life alone, there's a good chance you've been losing. There's a good chance you've been losing. Yeah, um, that's not the point of any of these things. I mean, seriously, what is he doing here? All these battles that I stated at the beginning, battles against entangling sins and tough relationships and finances and any of these things, if you've been fighting the battles of life alone, there's a good chance you've been losing. And if you're not losing now, there's a good chance you'll lose soon. These battles aren't meant to be fought alone. God has given us as believers, he has given us a mandate to be the church together, to be in relationship together, to be in community together. So, community together. I told you this is communitarianism. Church at Western Hills, the Lord is calling you, the Lord is calling us into battle together. The Lord is calling us, but there are, we must realize first and foremost that, uh, that we have, and this is a weird application of these texts. Wow. The trust that the victory to conquer comes from the Lord. 
That's the first thing. Now, how does this show itself in the church today? Well, here's, here's one of the primary ways. Um, the church at times, like those Israelites did, they, they cower in caves. They cower in holes. They run and hide from an enemy that... Yeah, here we go. Narcissus, yeah, allegorizing what we heard in our Old Testament text. Summarized, not read. To be winning. Or they go out into battle on their own, without dependence on the Lord, without an armor bearer, without someone to go with them, and they lose. We must put our trust in the Lord and recognize that ultimately the victory will come through him. It is not you who qualifies you to be a great disciple maker. It is the Holy Spirit who qualifies you to be a great disciple maker. It is not you who qualifies yourself to go and share the message of hope and salvation with the souls who are perishing. It is the Holy Spirit who qualifies you. Listen, when you go into battle, you may feel, well, I, haven't, I don't have enough training or I don't know enough about the scriptures, or I haven't shared the gospel very many times publicly, and I'm just worried about that. And what, Or I might say it wrong, and that would just mess them up. No, listen, church, you don't qualify you for this work. The Holy Spirit qualifies you for this work. You must trust the Holy Spirit, just as Jonathan trusted God to deliver him in that battle, no matter what he faced. You must trust that as you're obedient to the mandate that God has given you to go into the world and make disciples, that he will qualify you, that he will use you for his purpose and his glory. And then the next thing is you need to realize that you cannot win alone. We must, but we can win together because of Christ. Okay, you cannot win alone but you can win together because of Christ. And so we must realize both these things. We have to trust the Lord for the victory. And then we have to realize we don't go it alone. We do it in community. We do it in relationship. We are obedient to the mandates of God's word as his church that together we win, not individually. Together we win. To the mandates of his word together we win. Yeah, none of those texts actually say that we have a communitarian mandate. Who's your armor bearer? Who are you going to battle with? Oh, man. Who's my armor bearer? Are you out of your mind? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, now we have communitarian nurse Jesus. This is awful. Person that you can lean on. Who's the person that you know has got your back? When situations get tough, when relationships get messy, who is that person that you know you can go into battle with? I mean, for me, I have several. Um, I, one, I, Nathan Redman is one of my armor bearers and, and I'm an armor bearer. Yeah. See, the reason why the Lord had, uh, you know, first Samuel 14 written is so that you can ask yourself the question, who's your armor bearer? No wrong. And there was a time, uh, recently when we had to go at like 10, 11 o'clock at night and meet with some young men who were really struggling that night and they were making some hard life choices. And I believe, uh, that God put it on my heart that I was supposed to go. But it was one of those situations that it would, be, it would have been difficult for me to go alone. And so I called Nathan, and 10, 11 o'clock at night, he got himself over to my house. We rode in the car together, and we spoke to these young men words of truth, and we listened to them share about their struggles. And God used that conversation in a very powerful way. We're seeing fruit from it even to this day. God used that conversation. And so I win together with Nathan. I win, uh, I win with um, Jerry Wells. Jerry Wells is an armor bearer for me, and I, and I work hard to be an armor bearer for him. And, you know, I, I receive difficult information where I don't know if you've ever faced this in relationships, but you don't know what to do next in the relationship. You find out something, and it's so 
it's out of your league. It's overwhelming. You know that the, that the choice that some other person made is going to have devastating consequences, but you don't want, you want to approach it the best way possible. And I don't know what I do. I turn to Jerry and I call him on the phone. And I say, what do I do? Can I share with you a situation? What action steps should I take? How should I approach this? How can I show love while also confronting the issue? in this relationship. And so Jerry goes into battle with me. Uh, The men of my small group recently, I just met with those men and I shared with them some of the things on my heart and they gave input back to me. And uh, there's been many times that I've had conversations recently with uh, Michael Bollinger at at the character focus thing we were both volunteering with, with Roger Tudor, my father-in-law, as we're out there hanging out and we talk about things and I have armor bearers who will help hold me up and support me. Um, And then of course my wife, Rachel, and she is a powerful armor bearer in my life and one that supports me. I could not do what I do in ministry and serving other people if it weren't for her support and encouragement and her having my back. And so I have all these armor bearers and many others who stand up in battle with me that I know that as I go into battle, they've got my back. You know, another one would be my family, my dad, my brother, uh, John, my brother, Justin, I know that they've got, they've got my back. And, and if I'm going into battle, they'll be there if I need them. So who's your armor bearer who will hold you up in battle, prop you up as the enemy brings his attack, who will get your back as you fight in this most important battle to win the souls of men? Who, are, who is that person? Who will do that for you? If you don't have that, you need that. So now as we conclude here, I want to point out one last thing in the story. Before you can join the church and fight in the battle, you must crawl out of your cave. Jonathan. (laughs) Oh, that's an absurd application. So what's your cave that you need to crawl out of? Oh, good night. And his armor bearer and all the army of Israel had cowered into holes and caves. And they were hiding there in fear, in doubt, for selfish reasons. Whatever the case, they had crawled into the holes and they had cowered in the presence of a strong enemy. The first thing you have to do in order to get in this battle and win against all odds, and you will win because Jesus Christ declares you will win, but you must crawl out of your cave. Just like that was the first step. Before anything else happens in the story, they had to get out of the cave. So what does your cave look like? That's the question. What does your cave look like? Where are you cowering? Where are you hiding from the Great Commission? Where are you hiding from God's purpose for your life to fight in the most significant battle of our age for the souls of men? To do it in community and to do it in relationship? What does your cave look like? What are you hiding behind? Is it fear? Are you afraid that if you go into battle that you'll be rejected? Are you afraid that if you go into battle that you don't have what it takes to get it done? Are you afraid that others will persecute you? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that you just don't know how? Is fear your cave? What about doubt? Is doubt your cave that you're hiding in? This is utter nonsense. Doubt that God will come through like he has so many other times in history, but will he really do that for me? You know, you doubt that you're qualified and maybe you should train some more and spend a little bit more time waiting before you get involved in this. Is it doubt? What about selfishness? You know that if you get in this game, it's going to cost you your life as you know it right now. You know that if you get involved in the battle, 
that it's going to cost you things that are important to you. It's going to cost you time with family. It's going to cost you uh, freedoms. It's going to cost you availability. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you all sorts of stuff. If you get into this battle and begin to fight, it's going to cost you. Is that your cave? Selfishness? You're wanting to hold on to your life as you know it. You're not, you don't really want to readjust your schedule to make disciples. So you hold on to that as you know it, your life as you know it, instead of getting out of the cave and fighting the battle. What does your cave look like? And the question you Pack your bags. We're on a guilt trip now. This is just awful. You come out of your cave. Will you crawl like the, the Philistines, the uncircumcised called out and said, oh, look, they're coming out of their caves and God gave them into their hands. Listen, God will enable you to win the battle. And here's the deal. Again, Jonathan and his armor bearer didn't win this battle. But listen, they were instruments of God's glory. They were instruments of God's glory. You know what? You're not going to win the battle for the souls of men. Jesus has already won that battle on the cross. But listen, he invites you to be an instrument of his glory. What a privilege. If you belong to Christ at all, then that should just be calling out to your heart right now. You should feel, if you're not making disciples, you should just. Yeah, if it's not calling out to your heart, you're, I, guess, I, bet, I guess you're not a disciple of Jesus then. Just feel that rising up inside of you to say, I've got to get in the battle because I want to be an instrument of his glory. And there's no better place to be an instrument of his glory than on the mission field, making disciples, reaching the lost. That's where it happens. And all. Oh, man, this is. Just, uh, us as the church are called to be his missionaries. So what does your cave look like? Well, if you're in a cave, what are your action steps? Ask the Lord how you need to engage with the church. Listen, there's a lot of power in that. You know what I do many, many times with people I'm discipling? If I'm in a cave, what are my action steps? Um, or that I'm working with in the, in the Great Commission? I tell them, I ask them, will you pray about that and ask the Lord what he wants you to do and then do it? And they come to me and ask me for advice. And I know Amanda Autry could verify that this is true because her and I have done that a couple times recently where she came and she's taken over um, our, our clubs that we're doing at, at the church and going to be directing those next semester. And so Amanda will come to me and ask me, you know, hey, what, what should I do here? And it's in a relationship or a situation that needs some attention. And I, a lot of times, sometimes I'll give input, but sometimes I'll just say, would you pray and ask the Lord what your part is and then do it? And I want to ask you guys that today as your first action step. If you know you need to crawl out of the cave, would you pray and ask the Lord what you need to do and then do it? Do what he says to do. That's the first action step you need to take. The second one is you need to trust the leadership of your church. As God has placed biblical leaders over you to help guide you to be in the battle. Yeah, I'd trust that leadership if it was rightly handling God's word. You need to trust their leadership. And Jerry's been saying this for months, and, I, and I'm going to say it again today, and other leaders have stood up here and said it or been in coaching relationship, relationships and said it. You need to join a small group of believers to spend time with disciples who will help you grow in maturity and help you get in the battle, who will be your armor bearers and help you win. You need to do that. So if you have not done that yet, you need to be obedient to the Lord and to the leadership that he's offered you through the church. So if you're not in a small group, you're being disobedient to the Lord. You need to join a small group and you need to engage with those people and you need to live in community to learn how to fight this battle with other people. Let them be your armor bearer and you work to learn how to be an armor bearer for them. 
That's what it needs to look like. And then finally, um, become. some of you are already in small groups. Many of you, most of you are already in small groups. Many of you aren't yet, but either way, you need to take the action step of becoming transparent. Okay, some of you have been in a group for a long time, but you haven't really shared any part of your life that would lead to you being vulnerable, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and using the body of Christ around you to build you up and to help you mature. You've been sitting in a group for a long time, but you're not really willing to get to the nitty-gritty, messy parts of life and say, I struggle with this. I have a challenge here. I need prayer here. I'm fighting this battle, and I feel like I'm losing. You need to get in a group, and you need to say, I'm willing to be transparent. What do you want to know? Someone coached me. I don't even know how, where to start. What do you want to know? Ask me questions. And, and let those leaders and those members help draw that out and help lead you so that, into battle, into transparency, so that you can mature in Christ and become the warrior that God wants you to be for his. So this, these are the action steps we're getting out of a cave. Uh-huh. And so that's what you need to do. Those are the action steps. Pray and ask the Lord what I need to do. Join a group. And then be transparent with that group and let them help you grow. In that environment, you can't fail. If you, if you trust the Lord and you surrender to him and you make yourself uh, vulnerable with his church to grow together, you can't fail. The victory has already been secured. You become a part of the victory instantly as you join arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you go into battle. So here's the big question. Will you do it? No. None of the above. You haven't rightly handled a single biblical text. This is not, these are not biblical action steps. I don't know what this is. It's more like manipulation and control. You can hear about it all day. Will you do it? Will you bow with me in prayer? Nope. Done. Yeah, sorry. Don't get to pray. I'm not, I'm not sure which deity you're praying to. Oh, man, that was an utter train wreck. And yes, that, that smell... Yep, that was communitarianism mixed with some bad narcissistic eisegesis and some other stuff to boot, too. All out of context scriptures. Wow. Utter confusion of law and gospel. What a train wreck. Any, well, he did mention repentance at some point, and we, did, we got something that kind of sounded like the gospel, but really wasn't. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's by death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.